Flatiron School is an international boot camp for software engineering, data science, and design that changes lives through education. One of our strengths is our focus on teacher quality. Flatiron's educational development team has experts in both pedagogy and content knowledge who work with our teachers to ensure our students receive the best educational experiences possible. This is the podcast of the educational development team. Hi folks, this is Sean. I'm the Director of Educational Development here at Flatiron School, and I have another special guest with me today. Want to introduce yourself? Hey, my name is Rishi. It rhymes with squishy. I'm on the operations of education side here at Flatiron School. I've done a few different things, including having been a lead instructor. Yeah. And I thought we could just start with some of your background. Where do you come from prior to Flatiron? What's your educational background, your experience, that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. I was first introduced to Flatiron School. I was, I was a developer. I studied computer science, spent some time in the industry. A lot of my work really, I felt, was going to places that I didn't necessarily care for. For example, the last company I worked at before being here, we were building software for like three-letter agencies and big banks. So I think I, I felt a kind of drive to do something that was a little bit more proactive towards community, towards the world at large, and, and, and I think education is so important. So started looking into teaching, and I've had an experience with some management and, and some mentorship, and, and I kind of used that to translate what it might be like to be a teacher, and, and, and things worked out pretty well. Um, I think, I, yeah, I was, I was pretty apprehensive. I didn't know what to expect out of boot camps, but my first visit to Flatiron School the energy was just so palpable. You could really just feel the way students felt about their own code. And, and I don't know, it's very contagious. I, I was pretty much decided from that moment that I would end up here. That's great. Yeah. And so you kind of, without doing training in it, you developed the skills of a teacher. Can you talk a little bit about how your teaching practice has evolved since you started here? Yeah. To start off as like a baseline, like my, I have teachers in my family. My, my mother's a teacher. I've been around a lot of teaching, but not really any formalized education or background or context. Really, I think I just took what I admired from the teachers that, that really impacted me and kind of tried to throw away negative experiences I had with other teachers and, and use that as a sort of don't do this kind of thing. And that was what my teaching practice was at first. Lecturing was very difficult. I actually got some really great advice from Avi, who helped me remember that lecturing is just a performance. You go, you're out there giving a lecture. For the most part, for me these days, it's almost like going into a trance. Like, I don't know what's happening during the lecture, but I know it's like a soft focus, right? It's like you're in like a state of flow. So I, I think that was what first helped me kind of come to terms with it. The one-on-one -on -one teaching was really just good mentoring. And a lot of developers learn this out in the field. And I think that's what I still think those principles hold when we're working with students now. That being said, and Sean, you were, you were a large part of this when you came on board in the director of teacher training capacity, just getting a lot of context on what works and what doesn't, understanding some of the research behind the decisions we make in the classroom. Like it was crazy to me to see to like learn about constructivist theory and then realize, oh, like all of our practices actually closely match this. And we had just figured it out by trial and error. So that was really cool. Learning some, some really solid techniques. To give one example, Sean, you introduced me to wait time. The idea of when you ask a student or the class at large a question, you make sure that no one answers until a certain period of time has passed so that anyone who might have the ability to come up with that answer 
doesn't get cut off because someone else just shouted it out or raised their hand first. Yeah. And actually it was amazing. I, I've super incorporated that into my practice now, whereas just a month ago I was teaching a new mod one, complete beginner class. They had just come into the program. And what I do in my first few lectures is actually just bring it up, up front. I'm like, hey, I don't want anyone to answer any of my questions out loud. If you think you don't answer, flash me the thumbs up. And I say that a few times and it was fun, actually, like it became part of the class's culture. When we were in a lecture, if you had an answer and somebody like screamed out the entire class, it was like, wait, don't do that. <laughs> we learned not to do that. And, and at first I thought it was clunky. Like I was like, oh, this is like a weird clunky technique. But I realized like, no, we just tell them this is so that everyone can participate. Yeah. Right. And then they just, you know, they just get it. Of course, it's for better learning. And so we can we can get more people to actively interact with the material. So. Techniques like that have definitely been really, really awesome. And I think generally watching other teachers do their best work has really impacted the way I do mine. So even little things like be really precise with your technical language. Or I, I used to have a bad habit where I would do something in front of the class and just say, that was pretty pretty easy, right? And I actually had a student once who raised his hand and was like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just, just on one hand, the theoretical practice, but on the other, just doing the teaching and experiencing the act of being in the classroom and, and seeing how the students react to various things. And because we're on a three-week cycle, I was teaching the same content every three weeks for at least two or three rotations. I really got to become a master at the, the teaching that particular content. And that was really cool as well. Yeah. And you mentioned constructivism and how our the way that we've taught at Flatiron prior to my even coming here really models that way of learning. And it's so true. I mean, this is something I've said to so many people here that it's such a great place to start from as I come into this role. And it's really true that the kind of practice that I'm seeing here is very constructivist, which is amazing. Yeah, I am. Um, I didn't have a word for it before, but, but now <laughs> I do. Uh, I think another thing that you brought up a lot, Sean, when you first started, especially was being impressed by how willing the teachers are to seek feedback on their yeah. own on their own practice. And I think that's definitely like the number one thing that made me a better teacher was getting really good feedback. And mm -hmm. I mean, not all feedback was equal, of course. Like we have student surveys and I think there's a plenty, plenty of research done on how student surveys aren't necessarily actually descriptive of the teacher's performance. Mm -hmm. But I've gotten some really useful nuggets that if you like distill it down to the most useful stuff, there's a lot of really good areas of improvement that literally anyone can grow from. And I've, I've been really grateful to get that kind of feedback. Yeah, the culture of feedback here is so huge. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, we're going to switch topics here a little bit. Can you talk a little about your general philosophy of how you would teach a beginner to code? Yeah. So I would say like an absolute beginner, you have to treat them a little bit differently because they don't, they have no con concept of anything. So I think to a certain degree, everyone starts at the basic levels of variables, thinking about like information and how information is stored and how we give instructions to a program. And, and that, that's like step zero, right? If you, if, you can, if, you, if you haven't grasped that, then you're gonna have a tough time with everything else. But I think soon after that, by the time our students are in the classroom with us, um, by the time they've like shown up for the immersive, I think that the, the, my approach would change dramatically. I would go from, I'm gonna tell you what, what happens when you do this or why we do this to, I want you to formulate a hypothesis validate the hypothesis by running some code and then ask yourself what you learned. And, and then actually all of my module one lectures really, really, like I say the word hypothesis way too much. It's, it's all over the place. But that's, yeah, that, at that stage, the stage that our students are entering the program, I, I'm really focused on you need to take charge of whether or not an answer is right or wrong. Hmm. Um, I have students come up to me and, and say like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And 
sometimes I've, I've just been like, that doesn't matter. You know, like, <laughs> what does the code tell you? Right? The code tells you you got the result you expected, then you know what you're doing. And if not, then yeah. you need to like learn something else. Yeah. Um, so that's, that, I think that's how I would, um, and then, and, and I think as students go through the course, we, we, we ask them to become more and more independent. So we go from running, like writing and, and validating your own hypotheses to doing your own research, to like learning how to formulate questions of the internet, of your peers, of your teachers, whoever. And then eventually, like, I think the real goal at Flatiron School is that a student becomes a self-sufficient learner. And if we've done that, then we've done our job. Yeah. Which, I mean, <laughs> to be honest, that should be the goal of any educational experience i mean yeah even even here i think students have different expectations sure um but i think for the most part the teachers i've worked with really try to drill that into them whatever they come in with we tell them we want you to learn how to learn if you can do that you can do anything yeah yeah no it's so true yeah and so you've worked here for a bit over a year. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you've seen that exist in a coding boot camp that might be different from a more traditional learning experience? Oh, one, one big thing is like if you think about the profile of a Flatiron School or a boot camp student who's entering, entering whatever program, right? Oftentimes, they're either have been doing the same thing for a very long time, like they've been in some career, or they've been doing nothing or looking for, looking for some change. Or they've just graduated college, but they're, they've had a degree that they're not necessarily sure will take them to a certain place. And it's rare that you have a student who comes in and has this, I've been coding for a while, I'm here to learn a new language. And we do have those students, but they are few and far in between. I would more say that like our students are, are kind of unsure of themselves. Many of them have taken a massive risk to come here, either financial or emotional. Mm. I've had students whose personal lives have suffered because they took that risk, they took that leap. And so with that, I think comes a lot of, I would say apprehension, a lot of nerves, um, and definitely a lot of imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome, I would say comes to any anyone entering a new environment. Like for sure I felt it in college and I know a lot of peers who did, but I would say that it's such a prevalent part of our experience here that it's something that I, we talk about it from day one. And can you just, for someone who's not familiar with the term, can you just right. define that? Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a fun exercise that I do with students on day one where I'm like, who thinks they know what imposter syndrome is? Like most of the class raises their hand, maybe like at least three quarters of the class raises their hand. And then I'm like, okay, keep your hand up if you'd like to explain it to the rest of the class. <laughs> and maybe at least half of those hands go down. It's like, no, you know what it is. Of course you know. It's, imposter syndrome, in my words, is like the feeling that you don't belong, that you don't deserve to be there, you haven't earned the, the right to be in a particular setting, or that what you have earned isn't real. And so, like, yeah, I kind of start off, it's one of the first things we do with new students is we have a talk about imposter syndrome. And I always like, be like, look, those of you who put your hands down, like, maybe you're feeling imposter syndrome. Like, I know I feel it all the time. And then we jump into it. And, and it's something like, especially in the first two months of the course, or the first six weeks of the course, we're talking about imposter syndrome all the time. But I think it's something that comes up all the way at the end as well, right? It's like, now we're going off into the job search. Now we're yeah. going to, like... And now I have to look for a job, right? And for a lot of students, this is why they joined us, is to make a change in their career so that they can make a larger change in their life. And yeah, a lot of a majority of our students get there very quickly. But they're all feeling this apprehension and this, this feeling of, um, I don't belong, I shouldn't have graduated, how am I going to ever get a job? Just like at the beginning, they're like, I'm never going to learn to code, like, I got here by accident. The rest of my class is you know so much more proficient or so much more ready for this than I am. Yeah. So we do have to talk about it all the time. I would say like I've been teaching mod one a lot recently, and it was the, it was the module I taught the most last year as well when I was a full time lead instructor, and that really meant that I was 
the first face, myself and the coaches that I was working with were the first faces that our students got to see. So it became really important for us that we build a really solid culture of one, acknowledging imposter syndrome because once you make something real, you can make it go away. Mm -hmm. And then creating tactics, various tactics to, to kind of dispel that or, or put it aside for now so you could focus on learning. Mm -hmm. We have a couple of techniques. I don't know if you want to go deep into that. But yeah, go for it. Sure. Okay. I think for me, there's two main major techniques that we use to dispel imposter syndrome. One is actually doing the thing. What I mean by that is a lot of companies have a practice called deploy on day one. We have it as well. It's basically the idea that when you're a new software engineer, you don't have to have imposter syndrome because by the end of your first day, you've made a commit that's going into the code base that's becoming part of this application that you're going to work on now, right? Um, so what we do is we have our students uh, just, you know, it's 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 basic. Obviously, they're in their first day of learning a, a new, an entirely new skill, but we have them talk to their like people on their team, people in their cohort, and have them write bio pages for each other in code in HTML and then put them online. So they're deploying, they're using Git, our like version control software, they're using HTML, they're using the editor, they're setting up their computers, mm -hmm. um, and, and by the end of the day, they've put something out there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one way, and we continue to use that, you know, the technique of quote unquote doing the thing to uh, to say, like, like I said, the earlier example I gave, like the student who wasn't feeling confident, and I just said, run the code, let the code tell you what's real and what's not. Mm -hmm. um, it was crazy, it was honestly like, that's only notable to me because of the look on his face when I said that and how quickly he automatically was like, you're so right. Like, why am I anxious? We have like a, a universal truth that I can call on. Wow. Right. That was, that was super cool. That was a big like learning moment for me when that happened. But we, yeah, so I, I, I've always like constantly gone back to that. Like even we have assessments in the program, huge source of anxiety for students. But if I, if I say like, usually what I say when the assessment comes about is, Look, if you know how to test your own code, right, and you can build a hypothesis, validate whether your code matches that, and then move on if you're right, and debug if you're not, you don't need to know what you know. You just keep practicing until that happens really quickly. Mm -hmm. I definitely call upon that tactic a lot when talking about like students not really feeling up to par. Mm -hmm. I think the other big technique, uh, the other big tactic that we as an organization, as Flatiron School uses, and this, this practice completely precedes me by a long time, it's called Feelings Friday. And it's around the concept of building community in your classroom. I, I almost feel weird calling Feelings Friday a tactic because it is almost exactly what it sounds like. It's just on Friday, we get together and talk about our feelings. And it's like, it's been cathartic for me in the past. I've had lots of students really open up to their peers, um, share both their feelings of imposter syndrome, but also their excitement and their, um, their small victories, things like that. I've been comfortable sharing mine and when I first started the job it was a lot different like at my first feelings Friday it was like I don't know what I'm doing here but I'm really happy to be here you know like <laughs> I have no clue before I gave my first lecture or even I think the students I'd been sitting at my desk for the whole week and my students on Friday came up to me and were like who are you like why are you why are you sitting here because I had been so, so nervous like, do I go talk to people what's my job like your very I, own imposter syndrome yeah yeah it's I mean it's real um yeah. and I, but I, I it also made that way more authentic when I was just like, I'm going to be super authentic so you can too, right? And that actually, that same class, the very last feelings, we had a student who never felt comfortable sharing. Like there was like a whole meme around the fact that the student would turn Feelings Friday into a joke for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it was like a, they really opened up to the class at the very end and were like, this is like, um, I felt I felt something here that I haven't felt in a very long time. That kind of cohesion is is 
really awesome. I think it's rare in most spaces, but it's become so normal in my life here at Flatiron. And I think we can use the community as a way to empower individuals as well. So people work together, you know, it's like, oh, I like this person. I want to work with them on this, on this task, on this uh, homework assignment, instead of asking like myself to do it alone. Or like we have the strong students sometimes, we encourage them to work with students that they feel comfortable helping, you know, as a way to like strengthen their own explanatory and teaching chops. I think one thing the tech community has in small spaces, but not at large, or it's definitely like memeified. Like everyone in the tech community is super insular and a little bit antisocial. But I mean, I think it doesn't have to be that way. And, and spaces that aren't that way thrive because people are collaborating way more. And I, mm. I definitely think we, we try to cultivate that every single day here. Nice. Yeah. And you've, I don't know, do you have a count of how many students you've taught at this point? But I would say maybe 10 or 11 cohorts. So that's about, no, more than that. Somewhere between 200 and 300 students. That's yeah. a wide range, but maybe like between 220 and 280. Sure, no, that's fine. So, I mean, you've had a lot of experience with students. You've seen a lot of people grow into a career as a programmer. Can you share any success stories? Yeah, any student that we've had to like, I think for bringing a success story is not just that you went out and made, had the best job, got the best job ever, like work in Facebook or Google or whatever. For me, a success story is someone who is underconfident or struggling with the material, come to a new realization and, and start like honestly just killing it with code and just like doing a lot of really awesome things and like take things into their own hands and build confidence. That's like, that's the stage that I love seeing students succeed. So mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of times what we do in the program is we ask a student to repeat a module if they're not ready to move forward. Our evaluation process for this has definitely changed over since I started here. But generally we use our, our intuition as teachers and we use our intuition as programmers and ask ourselves, like, would this person succeed in the next stage of curriculum? And I think a lot of those students that I've had to have difficult conversations with where I'm telling them, like, hey, you're not ready right now, but you will be soon, seeing those students three weeks later just become leaders in their new classes, have all kinds of new insights with the same material, and then share them with the rest of the world. Like, Because, well, first of all, you have a student in Mod 1 if you repeat them, their class moves on, they're coming in and they're now suddenly like this leader in the new class. Mm. Plus they've seen all the material before. Plus generally when someone isn't ready at the end of Mod 1, it means that they need more time. So watching those students come into their own and really just become both technical and like community leaders is really cool. And that's what, for me, that's a, that's a success story. That's, I think that's a success on the student's part and success on the organization's part as well. Nice, yeah, yeah. Do you have any other ideas about what makes Flatiron's program unique? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think the community element is what I what I most... It comes all the way from the top, right? You talk about Avi's approach to teaching and the Flatiron way, and he has a whole lecture called Teach Love, where he's talking about if you teach students to love what they're doing and love the process, they'll teach themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that to expand on that, and I've heard this from Avi as well, like teach students to love what they're doing, teach students to love each other, teach students to love code, love the environment, love the unknown. Those are all things that I think like I I felt a massive affinity for when I first interviewed here and when I first started talking to people here. And I think mm. that's definitely what I would consider unique. I don't know that other schools don't have this, but I definitely think it's a huge selling point for Flatiron. Sure, yeah, yeah. So final question, we may have people listening who are interested in a career in programming, changing careers or doesn't have to be programming now, we teach data science, we teach design, we'll be teaching other programs. But for someone who is interested in particular in programming, given that that's your expertise, right. but might not be sure where to even begin, 
Do you have any advice on how to get started with that? Yeah, I think on one hand, what you have to do, and I mentioned this before, what you have to do is understand a little bit of programming semantics. That's the baseline for everything else. You don't have to do that with Flatiron School. You can you can learn that anywhere. You can learn that on your own. But that doesn't have to happen through code, and there are multiple different paradigms for problem solving. Before I learned coding, I was like really interested in video game design. And obviously, there's a lot of programming involved there, but you're really just asking yourself, what do I want to do? How can I get there? And then solve the problem. And I think a lot of people who want to learn programming do this already in their careers, done this in their personal lives. But problem solving is everywhere. So I think if you can feel a love for that, after that, it's just pushing through until you can hit that point, right? So there's the high level thinking about abstract ideas, taking different moving parts and placing them together to try to create a solution. A lot of different fields have that. If you have a love for that and you want to learn programming, you'll get there. You just kind of need to learn some of the basics as well, like learn the building blocks so that you can start making things with them. Nice. I would say, yeah, twofold. One, make sure you learn the building blocks. And two, don't get discouraged because that problem solving, that the part that's actually really fun is right around the corner. Yeah, that's great. One of the things that I love about Flatiron is the way that Avi has sort of established that we can teach anyone to code as long as they want to do it and have the grit to do it. Right. And it's so true that, I mean, so much of programming is just struggling through and figuring things out and learning how to learn. And if you have the willingness to do that, I think we've proven it. You really can learn to be a programmer. Yeah, I think this is kind of like a weird deep cut, but like those of you who have seen Dragon Ball Z, every time (laughs) Goku gets beat down by a new opponent, he comes back stronger, right? And it's almost like I'm really just going deep in, okay. (laughs) Whenever a, uh, like a Saiyan, it's in their their genetic code. It's like every time they lose a fight, they come back like twice as strong or something, right? It's in the Incredibles too. Someone programmed it, which is a little different. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. (laughs) But yeah, the point, the analogy is every time you make a mistake or you feel like you're failing or something goes wrong, you're actually learning. And as long as you see it as learning, you're going to be able to accept it and that'll actually be learning for you. And, and that's how I've learned most of my life is through making a variety of mistakes. Uh, I think that's how our students learn while they're in the program is they drill things, try it the wrong way, then try it the right way, or sometimes they get it the right way first, but then they do it another few times and they understand why that was the right way. There's always an opportunity to learn something. And if you can see that, then you're going to learn. That's great. That's such a great place to stop. Yeah. Rishi, thank you so much for taking the time for this. And I should also mention, Rishi is moving into a new role. He's going to be part of the expansion team that will take us out to Australia and Asia. And so this is Rishi's last week of working directly with me. And I just want to say a very, very public thank you so much for the amazing work that you've done since we've been working together here. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Folks, thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. Bye-bye. Take care. Do you enjoy this podcast? I'd love it if you'd leave a rating or review on iTunes or SoundCloud. And of course, please recommend it to your friends.